Oh, Luther, you had 95 theses. The matter is far more terrible. There is only one thesis. The Christianity of the New Testament does not exist at all. Here, there is nothing to reform. Is that Kierkegaard? Lawrence Well. But still pretty good. <laughs> Thanks for coming out to the House of Mercy. It's good to see you. Um, yeah. I hope you're all doing okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good to get past all that 4th of July stuff, isn't it? <laughs> Is everyone patriotic? <laughs> <laughs> no, they're... Um, they're super into Lawrence Welk, and they think I was making fun of him. Oh. <laughs> that must be it. Yeah. Um, no, patriotism is good. I mean, yeah. of course, yeah. local icon. Um, you know, if you like to know where we're at in the service, and you like to follow along, and you're like, where's the program? Well, we're trying to go paperless, but you can actually find the program by the QR code on the back of yeah. the hymnal. Just, you know, put your phone there, and you'll see what the hymn's going to be, what's coming next in the service, so. We've figured out that we're saving 14 trees a week. So that's pretty good. Yeah. And if you'd like to know where I'm at in my sermon when I'm preaching it, I can't. I'd be open to suggestions. Yeah. Oh, hey, let's make an announcement. But first, uh, let's say hello here to the band. Good to have you here. Glad to have you back once again. And now uh, you're going to do a guest artist spot for us? You yep. got a little something yep. for us? We'll get that in a bit later. All right, excellent. Good, good to have you guys yeah, back as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, thank you everyone who came out yesterday for the festivities on the lawn. It was really fun. The music was that amazing. Was was Maria Issa and Sarah White, uh, the DJ. Uh, Thank you, Emily, for doing the watercolors. Nancy for doing the tie-dye. I think it was so much fun. It was fun. And yeah. did you check out the beginnings of the mosaic there? Yeah, we're going to continue to work on that. So, uh, If you haven't, you should look at it, because yeah. it's going to improve the looks of that entryway a lot, I think. So. Yeah, and I think we'll all learn something. What are we going to learn? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and thank you, Angie, for the, the mosaic. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, that was, the uh, event on Saturday was uh, part of a series of events we're having this summer in cooperation with Bethlehem Church and uh, the Neighborhood Council. And there is one coming up, uh, it's a, co a community conversation around isolation, loneliness, crime, and crime. It's just kind of a way to get the neighborhood together to just have a good conversation. No. <laughs> and we actually need facilitators for that yeah. conversation, and the facilitation training will be on the 26th. And I think what a great, what a great set of skills to learn for any number of situations. So if you're interested in being a facilitator for that conversation, there'll be facilitators at each table. Let us know, and we'll sign you up for the training. Yeah, um, let us know. It'd be great. The facilitator training? The actual event is July 28th from 6 to 8 p.m. And yeah. there'll be a food truck here, so dinner oh, and conversation. All right. What were you going to say? Oh.
Yeah. And jokes, apparently, from a guitar player? Okay. No. This is the House of Mercy. Were you going to say something else? I was going to say that. Uh, <laughs> this is the House of Mercy, and welcome, welcome to, to it. it. Join me now in the prayers of community. I'll end each prayer petition with God and your mercy, and I invite you to respond. Hear our prayer. God of mercy, we pray for some sort of miraculous intervention or some more run-of-the-mill cooperation. One way or the other, we pray that the division that is racking this country and the world might come to an end, or at least begin to diminish. Help us love our neighbors, especially the ones we find difficult to love, especially the ones who don't believe as we do. Help us be moved by the wounds of the other. We pray for some sort of movement among all of us to some sort of recognition that we're going to have to work together to care for each other, to thrive as humans, or even to survive. Help us. God, in your mercy, God of mercy, keep us from believing in our own righteousness, from continually evaluating ourselves over against others, as if our lives depended on our own being better than others. Free us instead to receive your mercy, and may this free us to be merciful. God, in your mercy. 
God of mercy, fill us with love and gratitude for our lives and the people in them. Help us to speak well of each other. Help us to see and to interpret each other in the best possible light, that we might grow in love, in kindness, and goodwill. God, in your mercy. God of mercy, we pray for those who are suffering because they've been hurt by other people or because they've lost people they love. We pray for those who need physical or psychological healing or comfort somehow in their present state, even if it is not what they ever thought they could find comfort in. We pray for healing and strength, for moments of respite, for whatever it takes to get through the day. We pray for love and mercy that reaches into the depths and brings comfort. We especially pray for Steve and Kathy, for Carrie and Pierre and his mom, for John Carney and his family as they mourn the loss of his brother. We pray for Lowell and for Bob. We pray for all of those in need. God, in your mercy. We confess that we do not always love our neighbors, that we do not always lead with mercy, that we forget to be grateful. Hear our prayers and confessions as we pause for silence. Your mercy is wide and eternal. You forgive us all of our sin. Help us rest and be freed by your endless life and love. Amen.
Um, this is from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Uh, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. A teacher of the law came up and tried to trap Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to receive eternal life? Jesus answered him, what do the scriptures say? How do you interpret them? The man answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. You are right, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But the teacher of the law wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Jesus answered, There once was a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when robbers attacked him, stripped him, and beat him, leaving him halfway dead. It so happened that a priest was going down that same road, but when he saw that man, he walked by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite also came there, went over and looked at the man, and then walked by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was traveling that way came upon the man, and when he saw him, his heart filled with pity. He went over to him, poured oil and wine onto his wounds, and bandaged them, then put the man on his own animal and took him to an inn, where he took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Take care of him, he told the innkeeper, and when I return, I will pay you whatever else you spend on him. And Jesus concluded, In your opinion, who among these three acted most like a neighbor towards the man attacked by the robbers? The teacher of the law answered, the one who was kind to him. Jesus replied, you go then and do the same. Man, people love to talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan. They do, they love it. Uh, Everybody really just, it sends people straight to like, they bring out their literary critical selves. Um, They, whether it's just like your, a Sunday school teacher or a theologian or preachers or you're just that youth group um, guy who got assigned to do devotions on the first night of summer camp, this is a go-to. Because it's, uh, it, it's simple. It's like you read it and you're like, oh, Jesus is finally saying something that I can understand. It's just, it's, he's finally making sense. He's actually, he's acting like a, like a Western thinker. He's got this thought experiment. You could really probably graph the whole thing. It's clear. It's contained. A man is robbed, beaten, stripped of his clothes, and left for dead. But that's not the point. He's just a prop. So let's just leave him there, bleeding, dying, naked. And let's get to the real question at hand. Three people are passing by. One is a priest, the other a Levite and the other a Samaritan. So basically, a holy man, a lawyer, and an enemy. Which one will help him? Right? We know that the holy man, he uh, probably, you know, obviously would have some moral obligation to do so, but he doesn't help. The lawyer, uh, the Levite kind of lawyer, he doesn't help him, even though he might have some ethical obligations to do so. And uh, then here we have an enemy 
who in spite of all the acrimony uh, between the Israelites and the Samaritans, he acts out of empathy. He sees him as a fellow human in need, and he goes over the top helping him out, spending his own money, putting him on his own animal, binding his own wounds himself, and he saves him. So it concludes with uh, the question, who is this man's true neighbor? Why, of course, we know the one who showed him mercy, right? They stick the landing on mercy. Seems like we, we like that. But then, uh, so then Jesus just says, oh, okay, go and do likewise. Meaning, I guess in this instant, that the point is probably show mercy to your enemies or um, at least, you know, the one who shows mercy to you or... Or maybe you're the one showing mercy, or, or both readings work. Many people read it either way. Either, uh, yeah, go and let other people show you mercy, or go and show mercy to others. They go back and forth. Yeah, it's clean. It also makes really good, like a really good flannel board story. You get to cut out all the different characters and make them go down and like beat up another one and stuff. Um, yeah. It. Uh, it makes you feel like, it makes you feel good about yourself. You can understand it, you got it, you get the right answer in the end. Excellent. So you imagine there's a man, we've seen this, he's on the road, he's going down from a tall mountain. Don't even get me started how many people write about the significance of the height of the mountain and the difference they traveled above and below sea level and the significance that they find in it. Um, I've been that guy before, yeah. But he's uh, traveling around from this high mountain going down into this uh, valley, and uh, he falls among robbers. He falls among robbers. I mean, if that is not the most neutral way to say that a group of men violently attacked him, beating him nearly to death, taking off all his clothes, taking all his money, and leaving him there to die, I mean, fell among robbers? It's like robbers were having a conversation and he tripped. No. He was brutally attacked, a bloody mess. You could probably barely recognize him um, from the state of his face. I mean, who even know? Possibly he's a victim of hate, hate crime. He's passing through the Samaritan area. I mean, it could be racially motivated, this beating here. I mean, this could be a victim of rape. I mean, they took off all his clothes. They took him away, and they left him there. These are very brutal, very violent acts. But it doesn't say any of that, does it? It says... Uh, he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and robbed him, and then they went away. Gone. That's the end of the robbers, okay? All that. That's, uh, we, don't, we don't talk about them anymore. We don't know anything else about them. We will go on to talk about then the people who helped him or didn't help him and why and what that might mean. And uh, yeah, what are the ramifications ethically or theologically? The victim 
here, of course, really isn't a victim. He's an ideological prop. He can just lie there on the ground. He can just lie there naked, suffering, bleeding onto the dirt, struggling to breathe, lung collapse, choking on his crushed windpipe, because we have some interesting ideas to talk about. But we're not talking about the criminals who committed this horrible act. We're really about the victim. Martin Luther King Jr. was the first one to point out in this story that this road, he says he traveled it with his wife, uh, was a, a very notorious road. They called it the bloody highway because of the way it was structured. It curved down through these mountains road. So people, it was very easy for people to, uh, to attack people without them being aware. People were always being attacked on this thing. And uh, you just, we're not moved to ponder this victim, this, or these many victims that were obviously there, we're going to talk about people who did or did not help him. Um, and so, like, to quantify the righteousness of each of these people and how they acted in that moment and how they didn't. To do that, Martin Luther King says, is to completely ignore the systemic structures in place that have perpetuated this kind of violence for a very long time in this very place, for many different political factors, reasons. All these working together to make this kind of brutality and oppression possible. But we're not talking about that. No, um, this is about being good, right? About right action. I don't think so. I don't think this is what this is about at all. The behavior of any of these particular people in this particular situation. It's not about how to be good enough or righteous enough or the right way to be in this situation. Jesus is not teaching this lawyer how to behave properly so he will have eternal life. You know what this, this whole passage is about? What motivates all the lawyers' questions in this whole situation? Fear. This text is about fear. There is fear all over this story. Deep fear. This lawyer, he's scared to death. He walks with this terror inside him. And Jesus sees it. Jesus knows it. Jesus hears it in his voice when he's trying to come off like he's got it all together, like he's strong and powerful. When he comes out and he questions the teacher, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Is this a real question on this lawyer's part? Does he really want to know this, what he must do to inherit eternal life? Or does he just want Jesus to marvel at his wisdom? I mean, it's clear he wants something from Jesus, and Jesus knows that. But it's something much deeper than even he realizes. So Jesus gives him the standard rabbi reply 
when he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what's written? How do you interpret it? The, the lawyer doesn't waste any time answering because he knows the answer. He knows the answer to this question because he asked the question because he knew the answer to the question. And he wanted to impress Jesus, maybe, or those around him, or he just, that's the kind of guy he is. He says, love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all yourself, your soul, and, with all, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This wasn't a real exchange, and Jesus knows it. Maybe even Jesus knows what he's really asking. Maybe Jesus sees down deep into the place of the Lord's existential dread. But Jesus has enough compassion not to show him that. Jesus just gives the man what the man thinks he wants and says, Jesus says to him, you're right. You're right. Okay, just uh, do this and you will have eternal life. And uh, have a good rest of your day. And Jesus turns to leave. But the lawyer, the lawyer's, he's, he's still got that fear. He didn't get what he wanted from Jesus. He wanted like a fight or something, or like to feel something, or to have some conflict. Or He wanted Jesus to regard him, acknowledge him, respect him, Maybe to say something like, uh, you know, you know, I've been a rabbi for a really long time in addition to the savioring, and I want to tell you something. You are, you're special. You're special. You have a gift. You have a deep wisdom, and you're like, unlike anyone else. And I'm not supposed to tell people these sorts of things, you know, that the big creator guy shares with me, but I can't help myself. He likes you more than most people. But he didn't say anything like that. He just, again, says, yep, you're right. Have a good day. I'll see you later. Almost like he was nothing, the lawyer thinks. So the lawyer calls after him. Uh, Jesus, uh, uh, can you tell me this, though? Who is my neighbor? Oh, he thinks he has intrigued Jesus. He thinks he's scored. He thinks now he's got his attention. Yeah, I got it, I got it right. I know, I know the right question. I'm supposed to love my neighbor, you say, Jesus, but who is my neighbor? Clever man. Jesus does stop, and he turns around, and he starts a parable. This is great, the lawyer guy says. He thinks, I'm getting a parable. So, I mean, that's pretty good. So Jesus tells the parable. Of course, we all know the parable. We just heard it, repeated it many times. Man is beaten, robbed, stripped naked, possibly raped, could have been sexually or racially motivated, but uh, that doesn't really matter, as we covered. We're just gonna have him lie there for the rest of the parable. Let's talk about the real thing, who helps him out. You know, the priest, no, Levite, no. The enemy, yes. So Jesus asked the question, 
the lawyer has been waiting for. Which one of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Lawyer maybe straightens his robe out, pauses for effect. The one who showed him mercy. It's the big ta-da. But Jesus doesn't seem any more impressed than he was with the first answer, the answer to the first question. Jesus says, yeah, go and do likewise. And this lawyer is left with that existential fear, his deep dread. It's, it's a kind of terror that lives inside of him, that's been inside of him, that motivates the way he lives his life, that compels his ambitions, and which for the most part he is unaware of its existence. It's just this thing that he, that he feels sitting out of sight on the dark side of his brain. He cannot glimpse or articulate this fear. Clearly the gospel writer, or Jesus, placing this in Luke, is not trying to communicate to us, the reader, how to behave in a right and righteous way. Jesus or the gospel writer is not trying to provide us with an answer of what we must do to inherit eternal life. I mean, that can't be it. The parable, it's just, it's set up, it's set up comically and it's set up at the same time to be awful offensive, maybe frightening, but it's not about being good. Let's just start with this, just to look at this. The lawyer asks, what should I do to inherit eternal life? The real answer is uh, inherit? You don't do anything for that. Uh, what should I do to inherit eternal life? The real answer is like uh, nothing. You can do nothing to affect it either way. Jesus is like, don't worry, my dude. Jesus knows the lawyer doesn't want to hear that. Doesn't want to hear that he's powerless to affect the eternal state of his soul. He would almost rather be damned than to hear that not only can he do nothing, but that every other common so-and-so, the rankest and most wretched, the most offensive and depressive, they all get the same as him. It doesn't matter that he's smarter or more respectable or more powerful or prettier or wittier. They all get eternal life with the same amount of power or no power. So he has to come back to Jesus. You know, he's not even completely aware of this dynamic going on inside him. He just knows that he feels bad or stupid or doesn't understand or doesn't think it's fair, and that makes him want to fight. So he hits back when he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus just responds, uh, 
with this parable. He says, let me tell you a parable. But that's not, he, he, wants, he wants Jesus to say, uh, look, I'm going to share this parable with you because I can tell that you are a, you're a wise and you're a, a learned man. So won't you join me in this thought experiment? But then Jesus tells him the story of this heartbreaking crime, this heartbreaking crime. He lays this naked man bludgeoned to death at the feet of the lawyer to see if the lawyer can get it, to see if it will spark any empathy or compassion or mercy in the lawyer to say, hey, wait a minute, we can't move on. What about this, this guy here? But no, the lawyer is satisfied to go along with Jesus, thinking Jesus is engaging him, uh, recognizing his intellect or his wisdom, and he's fine to just let that uh, man lay there as a prop. Then Jesus parades in front of him this priest that should show compassion, this Levite, who's basically a lawyer that should come to his aid, and then an enemy which surprisingly saves the man and helps him. And the lawyer thinks he's on to Jesus and notices this little trick at the end. So when Jesus asks, which of these three was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed him mercy. He's got it. But let's just look at what Jesus is trying to help this man see. The lawyer is thinking he's wise in positing this question, who is my neighbor? He posits the question in such a way that he assumes that there is such a category as not my neighbor. When he asks, who is my neighbor? Which implies who's not my neighbor. And once he knows who is not his neighbor, then he knows that he doesn't have to love. Show mercy or compassion to those people. Do you think in Jesus' mind at the end of this interchange that the Messiah thought, yes, you're right. So love the people who help you. Love the people who help you out and everybody else in your community, in your life, who pass through your life, who don't agree with you, who offend you, repulse you, well, they can go to hell.
listening to the House of Mercy podcast. You can experience all this live every Sunday at 5. Check houseofmercy.org for all the details. House of Mercy is a church in St. Paul. You should come. It's not that bad. You have to walk.